So I was in uh, Salt Lake uh, back in November, and I was doing my sermon writing retreat, and I had a friend that lived there, and I met with him. His name is Trinity, Trinity Jordan. Uh, Trinity was a church planter in the Salt Lake area, and then God had called him from there to be a lawyer. He went and he ends up getting his degree, ends up working for the federal government. He'll tell you more about that. But I went out to to coffee and breakfast with Trinity because I had met him at another event. And uh, we were sitting there, we're talking, and he's asking me what I'm doing here, and I'm writing these things. And he goes, what, well, what, what kind of series are you going to do? And I told him, and I said, one of them was insecurity. He goes, you know, I wrote a book on insecurity. And I go, no, I didn't know that. I go, what, what is it? It's called Sabotage. And that's all he said. <clears throat> I went back to my hotel room, downloaded it onto my Kindle, and in the next three, three and a half hours, I read the book. And after reading the book, I was instantaneously convinced that A, I'm going to call this series Sabotage, perfect name. B, I want him to come and I want him to kick the series off for me. And C, like I want him just to kind of like let his book be a standalone and then God gave me some additional thoughts for the rest of the series. And so this series is going to be on Sabotage and my friend now, I would call him a good friend now, Trinity Jordan is here in Kearney, Nebraska with us, and he's going to be speaking now to all of our campuses, Um, an author, a father, a lawyer, a church planter, but more than all those things, the guy that just loves Jesus, and he wants to see the local church win. And so to help us kick off this brand new teaching series called Sabotage, dealing with the issue of insecurity, would you please welcome with me my good friend, Trinity Jordan. Come on. Oh, it's good to be here. Uh, yes, my name is Trinity. That's the first question everyone asks. They're like, did you change your name because you wanted to be a pastor? Uh, no, I grew up in Italy. There were some old Italian spaghetti westerns. The cowboy's name was Trinity. My dad saw those movies. <laughs> you didn't. Uh, yeah, I, I get it. It sounds like a, you know, a horse that was riding in the Kentucky Derby owned by a Catholic charity. I got it. I got it. <laughs> totally get it. So my senior year of high school, we moved to Utah of all places. Now, this is probably lost on most of you, but my name is Trinity living in Utah. There are, don't know if you know this, some Mormons in Utah. Mormons are to Utah as corn is to Nebraska. And so the, the Mormons, they do not believe in the theology of the Trinity. So basically my name was, hi, I'm not Mormon, right? No blending in, none. Uh, uh, none. So here I am, a senior in high school living in Utah. My parents actually... There's a church plant that comes in in that area, uh, and, and my parents get saved, like baptized at the, the YMCA. Um, they, they force me and, and the rest of my, my brothers and sisters to go to church, and, and I get saved. And so I'm a brand new Christian in Utah, my senior year of high school, and one of my teachers at, at, at my, in my high school would ask me about my faith and was really interested because, uh, I, you know, here I am going to church all the time, and and she wanted to know about my faith, and she talked to me about her faith, and she was obviously Mormon. And then she would say stuff like, you know what? You should meet my daughter. I'm like, the teacher's trying to pawn her daughter off on me, you know? <laughs> I bet she's ugly, you know? I was like, woof, you know? 
And then I went to an event, because her, her daughter went to a different high school, and she was like, hey, this is my daughter. And I was like, jackpot, you know? <laughs> I was like, hello, my name's Joe, Joe Smith. <laughs> Just kidding, I went with Brigham. Um, <laughs> So I would, I would hang out with her daughter, and, and her, I was the first person that she had ever uh, met and been around who wasn't Mormon, and so she was like, why aren't you Mormon? And, and, and you know, I was brand new to this thing, so I was like, I don't know. I mean, I guess because I don't believe I can become a god someday, and she's like, we don't believe that. I was like, I think you do, actually. Like, you might want to look into that. And she would come back and be like, we do believe that. So I was like, well, you know, I, I, there's this church, like, why don't you come with me? And so she went to the church, and there was a service, and they talked about the grace of God and God's redemptive love, and she, she raised her hand during the altar call, gave her life to Jesus, and so her mom hated me after that. And then we got married in the middle of college, and then she really hated me after that. Now, my in-laws are great. They really are. They're, they're, they're super great. They when they're asleep. Um, <laughs> so, my, <laughs> I, I, is this online? <laughs> uh, <laughs> good thing there's nothing that you can search the internet on. Um, so, my wife, uh, you know, left the Mormon church. When I say, like, her family's Mormon, I mean, like, the, her family's Mormon. Her, like, great-great-grandfather was Brigham Young's best friend. Like, when they got there, he was like, this area is yours. You know, like, that, like, that's, like, they own stock in this. This is not, they didn't just join because two people showed up at their door. Uh, like, they started this. So, their whole family is Mormon, and, and my wife is, is obviously not. And so, our, our daughters are, you know, been raised in the church, and we're products of church planning, we're products of missions, we're products of, of getting out there and sharing the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why church planning and church and church health is so important to us, because without this, our lives never would have been changed. And we believe this. And so here, here, here we were as is, a is, is young couple that, that, that got married and was living for God, and I wanted to go to Hawaii. I figured that was a great place for God to use us. Uh, they need to hear the gospel. That's what, but God had other plans, and he sent us back to Utah. And so we were church planters in Utah, and we planted 13 different house churches. We had two different locations for our campuses there. We helped to plant churches in other states as well and send out leaders and missionaries. And God blessed us during a season of our life. And then God did something really strange because only God does this is he told me to leave that and go to law school, which normally it's the reverse, right? Normally lawyers get saved and then become pastors. And God was like, no, nah, I want you to do it backwards. And so that's what I did. And, and we were in, in Miami. There were six years of being in Miami. Actually, it was, it was close to eight years. I'm like doing all the math in my head of, of how long I was out there. Almost, almost eight years. I was a federal prosecutor uh, for the government. Worked under two administrations the Obama administration into the Trump administration. And then when God was done with that, uh, and just, I mean, I'd find myself in me these meetings where I'm like, why am I sitting here? Like, these, this is the president. This is, you know, this is these administrators. These are the leaders of our country. 
and God had just blessed and put me there. And now we, God has moved us back to Utah, and I'm just a normal lawyer. That's what I do. Just a normal lawyer. Nothing, nothing fancy, nothing cool. And I just get to go and help churches, and I get to be with my friends. And so I'm telling you the backdrop of all that because it fits into everything that we're going to be talking about. And that is uh, found really in the book of John. So if you have your Bible with me, if you could turn to, with me to John, I'm going to be in John chapter 20. And really, I'm going to be all throughout the Bible. And if you don't believe me, buckle up, hang on, we're going on a ride. John chapter 20, and I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Get this, verse 2. So she ran and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Hmm, jab there at Peter. And said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. Okay, so now during this time period, when you would write a narrative, a firsthand account that you were involved in, it's different than what we do in any, uh, in any English literature, any English writing. But back then, you would not use personal pronouns. You wouldn't say I, we, and you wouldn't use your name. So you would come up with a descriptive phrase to describe yourself, and you would insert that into the story, and then the readers would know that that's, that's who wrote this, is this, this kind of ambiguous or this descriptive phrase is the writer. And so John has come up with his descriptive phrase throughout the gospel of John, and he is described as the one whom Jesus loved. That's what he's come up with, right? Now think about this. Out of the four books that we call the Gospels, because they tell the story of Jesus' life, scholars say that John was written last. And it was written at a time where all the other disciples had been martyred and gone by this point. So John is writing it, and he's like, I'm the one whom Jesus loved. Any objections? <laughs> nope, print. You know, like... There's no one to argue with him, right? No, 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 it was really Phil. You know, like, nobody to argue. Okay, so he, this is, get this. I, I'm pointing this out because it gets better. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Ah, which disciple are you? Well, I'm the one that's faster than Peter, right? And Jesus loved me more. Verse 5, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. Verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. Ah, which one are you? Well, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm faster than Peter. And when I went into the tomb, I believed. 
unlike that unbelieving Peter over there. So here it is. This is the crescendo of, of humanity. This is the whole reason you and I are sitting here in church, is the tomb is empty. This is the story. And John is telling you this story, but laced amongst this story, this monumental story of the tomb being empty, is this petty rivalry between Peter and John. John wants you to know the tomb is empty, and I'm a faster runner than Peter. (laughs) Right? Who's more of a man of faith, Peter or John? Who does Jesus love more, Peter or John? Who can run faster and get to the tomb first, Peter or John? Now, if you don't believe me that this thing is, is playing itself out, let's move to the next chapter, John 21. Here's what takes place. What, this, the resurrection has taken place. The tomb is empty. Jesus is raised from the grave. He's hanging out with his disciples. He's on the, the Sea of Galilee. They're on the banks. They're having a fish fry. They're eating breakfast. And, and Jesus is having this moment where he's just talking to Peter and John chapter 21. And here's what he says. It's verse 15. Um, and, and when he had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, and he call, he's calling him Simon, but this is Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs, which, which would have been known to, to be a leader of those that are following me, that are, that are, that are under my care. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? So Jesus asked this question three times. Now, uh, Peter, and it's recorded in the Gospels, Peter actually denied Jesus three times after he was arrested. Now, who records that Peter denied Jesus three times? Because it's kind of, you know, a black mark on Peter's uh, resume there, right? John records that. Nobody else does. John records this, right? Because he wants you to know this. And so Jesus is asking this three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. It's probably like he's letting, keying him in. I know what you did, bro. And he's telling him, but here's what I have for you. I want you to be a leader of the people that are following me. Those that I have have around me. I want you to lead them. Uh, Verse 17, 18, it says, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend to him, tend to my sheep. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now he said this, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. This is what Jesus is telling Peter. Now look at this, verse 20. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Creeper. The one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Verse 21. So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, well, what about this man? What about him? Now, here's the sacred, holy moment. 
between Jesus and Peter. And what can Peter think about? Only thing that's on his mind is, what's John getting? What about him? Is this something better? What is it compared to me? What is he getting? Look, this isn't lost on Jesus. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? Listen, that's because back then they would take Jesus' words and they would twist them to being something else. We don't have that problem today. Don't need to worry about it, okay? <laughs> what is that to you? What is that to you? How many times are we invited to follow this resurrected Christ into the life that he's created for you and me, and we get sidetracked because we're looking to our right and we're looking to our left at what other people got going on and what God has given them, and what God's called them to do, and what God has blessed them with, or what opportunities they have, and we start comparing ourselves, and we're not paying attention to what God has called us to. Okay, look at this. This plays itself out in the Old Testament as well. Genesis 27. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Genesis 27 starts to tell the story of a man named Isaac. It's actually before Genesis 27. You hear the story of Isaac, and Isaac's the son of Abraham, who had many sons, many sons. Okay. Sometimes churches like break out in song with me, but uh, all right. So Abraham, and then there's Isaac, and Isaac has two sons. He has twin boys. One's born first, and his name's Esau, and the, the second born is Jacob. Now, the Bible describes Esau as a very skillful hunter. I mean, like this burly man. He's like a man's man. He's just this hunting. He's like, I don't know, I just envision him like biting the heads off of bats, you know, like, ah, just, I don't know why that's in my head, but that's Esau. And it also says that he is, uh, has uh, like a reddish complexion. So he's, he's the ginger, you know, the, the red. And, but here's the thing about him. It says that he's hairy. Like extremely hairy, like Teen Wolf Harry, like, like the guy that takes off the sweater and he's still wearing his sweater. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to show you that that's, that's what happens. Uh, so here's what's going on. When we get to Genesis 27, there's this kind of um, moment, the symbolic gesture that takes place within the Jewish families. And that is the oldest is given a blessing by the, the father. And Jacob knows that that's not his blessing. That's Esau's blessing. But he wants to steal his brother's blessing. So his dad um, has almost gone completely blind at this point. The Bible talks about that his eyes have gone dim. So he can't see very well. And so Jacob dresses up like his brother. And he puts his brother's clothes on. But he also needs to simulate his brother's hairiness. So what he does is he puts animal furs around his arm and lets his dad touch it. Like, that's hairy, right? Like, if animal pelt is the way that you simulate somebody's hairiness, like, go to a doctor, bro. Like, that's, that's just, just bad. So, this is what he does to disguise himself. Um, and here's what happens in verse 18. It says this. 
Then he came to his father. This is Jacob coming to his father and said, my father. And he said, and the he is Isaac. Isaac says, here I am. Who are you, my son? Now, the Jewish storytellers would do this something. It's kind of like a foreshadowing. That's what we would call it in our writing style. But the Jewish storytellers would, would make it that the first kind of words where somebody describes themselves in the narrative is foreshadowing what you need to pay attention to for that character for the rest of the time that they're introduced within the narrative. And so here's these first words out of Jacob's mouth as we're really introduced to him. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Get up, please. Sit and eat of my game that you may bless me. So when we meet Jacob for the first time, Jacob doesn't want to be Jacob. Jacob wants to be Esau. Jacob's pretending to be somebody else. He wants to be the firstborn, not the second. Now look, we skip down to verse 24, and he said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. Jacob don't want to be Jacob. So here's what happens in the rest of the story. Jacob does. He steals his, his brother's blessing. Esau hears about it. Esau wants to kill him. And so Jacob goes to his mom, and, and his mom's telling him, like, Jake, or Esau's really mad at you. He, you know, he's gonna, you're on the war path. You need, you need to get married. And so what should you do is you should go to a family reunion to find your spouse, because that's what everyone does if you live in Arkansas. But... Uh, <laughs> Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> so that's what he does. He goes to, to where his uncle is and he marries one of his cousins. And then he, he marries a second one of his cousins. So now he's from southern Utah. So, <laughs> it's almost over. Hang on. Okay. <laughs> so when we get to Genesis 32, he's got, he's got multiple wives. He's got lots of kids, and he's rich. And the reason why he's rich is because he swindled his, his father-in-law um, during this time, and he's just wealthy, wealthy, wealthy. But he decides to go home. And at this time, his dad has died, Isaac's dead, his mom's died, but Esau's alive. And so he starts heading home, and what he hears is that Esau is on his way to meet him. And he, the last he had heard is Esau wanted to kill him. So what he does, and you can read this right before we get to, uh, it's verse 26 of 32. What he does is he takes his wives, wives, more than one, and his kids, lots of them, and says, you guys go ahead of me. When you get to Esau, bow to him and say that you're my, you know, we worship you, we're, we're your servants, you know, we're at your beck and call. And then he says to, to his servants, that, that are like over his donkeys. He said, you go ahead. And when you get to my brother Esau, go, these are your donkeys. We are your servants. He says to his servants that are over the horses, you go ahead. And when you get to my brother, say, we are your servants. These are your horses. He does it for everything that he owns. Everything. And so by the time we get to Genesis 32, verse 26, Jacob has given everything that God has blessed him with back to Esau, what he stole. Gives it all back, and he's all by himself. And in verse 26, it's in the middle of the night, 
it says that this man comes down and starts wrestling with, with Jacob in the desert. In fact, there's, there's a rabbit trail you can get on is, is, who is this? Is it an angel? Is it a man? You know, most scholars say that it's this, I call it angel man. And it's like an MMA fight, fight going on in the desert. And they're, they're all wrestled up. And in verse 26, this is what it says. Then he said, and this is the angel man talking, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, and this is Jacob, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's obsessed with blessings. <laughs> Verse 27. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, when we first met Jacob, Jacob didn't want to be Jacob. He wanted to be the firstborn. Now we see him where he's emptied himself of all that he's stolen. He's all by himself. And now he's finally comfortable in his own skin. And now when he's asked, who are you? I'm just, I'm just Jacob. I'm just Jacob. I'm the second born. I'm just Jacob. Again, this isn't lost on the angel man, because look at this, verse 28. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob. I bet he was like, what? Ah, how long has it taken me to be comfortable being Jacob? Now you change my name? He said, but your name will be Israel, for you have striven. And your Bible might say struggle, or it might say wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. Maybe this is what it is for you and I, is that we're not okay with who God made us. Maybe we wish we were bigger or smaller or richer or shorter or taller or prettier, or stronger, or that God gave us those opportunities, or placed us in that family, or gave us that job, or gave us those skills. Maybe this is what it means to be human, because deep down inside, we're not comfortable in our own skin, and we wish that God had made something different, or given us something different. Why didn't you do that, God, for me? Why didn't you answer that prayer? Why was I born like this? You can make the, the argument that this is one of the central struggles that we have as humans, is this struggle with God and that we're not okay with what God has made. And the, this, this sabotages our relationship with God and it sabotages our relationships with others. And so maybe what's happening here in Genesis 32 with Jacob, when this angel man says, you've wrestled, you've struggled with God and man and have prevailed, maybe what he's saying, you finally have come to grips with who God has made. And because of that, now God can use you. See, because up to this point, it's just been Abraham and Isaac. But we know that the fathers of Judaism and what, what we have here is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But how can God use Jacob when Jacob's not okay with being Jacob? And finally, when he's okay with being Jacob, God says, I got it. I can use you now. Because now you understand who you are. Now you're Israel. But really, isn't that our question? How can God use you 
How can God use me when I want to be somebody else? How can God use you when you want things to be different from how God made you? And Jesus says to Peter, what is that to you? What is that to you? How many times do we lose our joy in life when we start comparing ourselves to others around us and wishing that we had their life or we had what they had? All right, so now I'll take you to the very end. We're about to land this plane. Exodus chapter 20. If you know anything about the Bible, you'll know that Exodus 20 is where we get the Ten Commandments. Uh, And even those that aren't fluent in the Bible know what the Ten Commandments are. In fact, all of what we have in the law, what we call the law in Leviticus and in other areas of the Old Testament, is us trying to legislate, trying to put rules in place so that we don't break the Ten Commandments. That's all that is. And so you've probably have heard in church, and if you spend enough time in church, that you could break up the Ten Commandments into two parts. You can, these are the ones that relate to God, and these are the ones that relate to man. Well, that's not how Jewish theologians and ancient commentaries break them up. Is They break them up in this, that there's something strange about the 10th commandment, and they puzzle and argue about the 10th commandment. The reason why they do that is because the first nine commandments, they say that these are what we would call externally observable. You can see the first nine take place in somebody's life. You could see if they worship another god. You could see if they're disrespectful to their parents. It's my favorite verse as a father. You can see if somebody steals, right? Or if, 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 if somebody commits murder. Like we could see these things take place. But the, the old Jewish commentaries, these ancient commentaries say, but you can't see the 10th one. It's internal. So how do we legislate and correct something that's internal. And this is the fight. So let me read the 10th commandment to you. 10th commandment, verse 17. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or season tickets to the University of Nebraska. <laughs> that's in, that's, you don't know, that's in the text. Or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet it. Some of you are like, have you seen the way we've been playing lately? I ain't coveting those tickets. (laughs) But here's the thing. You can't see any of this. You can't see that if I'm having a little coveting party in my head right now. Have you seen that nice jacket that Pastor Jeff is wearing? I could want it. Nobody would know. You can't see that. And so this is what the ancient commentaries say. They say, Here's the thing. The 10th commandment is actually a bonus. It's a bonus. That's what they say. And they say this is the thing, that if you do the first nine, that you live the way that God has asked you to live and live the life that God has given you, you will not want anybody else's life. Isn't that deep? Well, what about him? What about him? How many times do we let this steal who God has called us to be? Listen, we need to walk out of here and be able to 
to look at God and, and that when he says, what is your name? You could just go, I'm Jacob. And for me, I hated my name, Trinity. I hated it. Hated it. It took me so long to just embrace that I've got this kind of weird name. It's Trinity. But finally, when I became comfortable who God had made me to be amongst people that don't believe in that name, I could say, I'm Trinity. So when God asks you, what's your name? You can go, I'm Amy. I'm Chris. I'm Kim. I'm Jeff. I'm Nate. Whoever God has called you to be, could it be that our heart and our identity is tied to this? I'm, I'm, really, I'm, I'm willing to bet that it is. That our purpose, what God has called us to be, this is something we need to embrace and stop looking to our right and our left. Amen? Stand with me and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's, it's moments like this that we, we dive into these narratives uh, and these, of the Scripture. And on the surface, they can look like they're, they're just giving us written history of what's taken place. But God, it's, it's in these moments that these narratives start to read us. And we start to see us in the pages of Scripture. And you start doing something where you're, you're plucking at the deep parts of us where we're struggling and where we're wrestling just like Jacob with being comfortable with who you created. God, and I know there are people in this room right now that just need to hear this, that they are not their fathers, that they are not their mothers, they are not their sisters, they are not their brothers, that you have created them to be them. And so God, when we walk out of this room today, God, I pray that you would start reminding us of how special we are, how we're not an accident, that you created us and knew us before we were even formed in the, our mother's womb. And you have a purpose and plan for us. And let us, let us embrace that purpose and plan. So God, that you might use us and you use us to glorify your name. Lord, we pray this in the name above all other names, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.